are listening to Two for Tea. I'm your host, Iona Italia. And I'm her frequent co-host, Helen Pluckrose. This is a podcast about politics, society, science and art. And about how everyone is wrong apart from us. This podcast is brought to you in association with ARIO magazine, a digital forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. To become a patron and gain access to patron-only broadcasts and other perks, support us on Patreon at 2 for Tea. Welcome to The Conversation. Hello, everyone. My guest this week is Jamie Woodhouse. Jamie is a sentientist, a humanist, and a vegan who will grant rights to general artificial intelligences once we create them and they start creating each other, which sounds really terrifying. Um, He believes in using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. And Jamie, you're coming to us from... North London. And I am coming to you from Buenos Aires as usual. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I guess the first question is, what is sentientism? How do you define it? Reading your ARIO article and um, your description on the Sentientist Facebook page, both of which are linked to in the show notes, I my impression was it's a combination of atheism plus veganism. That that's the basic. That's the basis of it. It's sort of veganism plus because you also are interested in giving rights to AIs, which I am very, I find a extremely dodgy proposition, but I guess we'll get into that. But first, how would you define it? And how did you come to come to know about it and become a sentientist? Yeah, that's, that's not a bad shorthand because the atheism and the uh, veganism um, link quite nicely. But I, I, the way I define it is by three things. It's, it's a commitment to using evidence and applying reason in all things. Um, and it's granting moral consideration to anything that's sentient. And in simple terms, that means anything that is able to experience, um, you know, is able to suffer, is able to feel pleasure. So those are the three things. It's evidence, reason and compassion. And those might naturally lead you to atheism and humanism and indeed veganism. Um, so I came to it in a way my my. Um, campaigning and thinking around animal rights felt quite distinct from my thinking around atheism and humanism and in a way sentientism brings them together. Um, I've long thought that humanism is um, a deeply important force for good. You know, it's part of the masthead of uh, your magazine, of course. Um, And I found it frustrating that humanism isn't more often talked about as um, a potential answer to many of today's problems, whether it be, you know, post-truth, whether it be the challenges of identity politics, whether it be the challenges of religious privilege. So I've always, uh, you know, been, uh, I guess, counted myself as a humanist. But there's always been that niggling um, concern about humanism, and the clue is in the name, that it focuses too much just on one species. Um, And that has increasingly seemed to me like quite an arbitrary boundary um, that we should if we really follow evidence and reason, if you're serious about the humanist commitment to evidence and reason, you have to think about sentience and therefore, you know, other things that are sentient. Um, Thanks. I want to come back to this species, the species issue later, but there are two things there which I want to unpick. 
Um, I guess the first one, which we'll probably return to a little bit more later, is this idea of using evidence and reason in all domains of life. And I think that is one of the main problems that I have with sentientism, especially with, I guess, Peter Singer is kind of your founder and the eminence grise of this kind of movement. And I, I think Peter and quite a lot of other people um, involved are seem to be high-functioning autists who don't have a conception of uh, the role that emotion and feeling plays in human life. And I think that that I think that actually damages the philosophy, makes it more unrealistic and also less compassionate, because the way we feel about things is also important. So it's a common challenge to, I guess, atheism and secular humanism and maybe sentientism, that because it does have a quite a naturalistic worldview, it's focused on evidence and reason, that it, it can feel a little cold and unemotional. But um, that's not the intent, partly because sentience itself um, encompasses the full range of um, experiences. And in, in that context, emotion, intuition, you know, anything that affects the way uh, you feel is seen as deeply important and, and powerful. I guess um, there's also a recognition that my when I talk about reason, that's quite a broad definition of reason that can in- include intuition and emotion, but, but they do need to be uh, tested and challenged against objective fact. So while it is you know, a naturalistic viewpoint. And when we're thinking about taking decisions and trying to reduce suffering, um, it's not one that's blind to emotion and intuition and many of the softer things that give our lives meaning. I just wanted to give an an example of what I meant. You might not, obviously, this is an example from Peter Singer, and it might not, it's probably not something that you agree with. Mm. But when we just say we need to base things on evidence and reason, that sounds really lovely. You know, who could possibly disagree with that? Um, But some of the implications I find disturbing and really kind of inhumane because emotion and feeling is a big part of our well-being versus our suffering. Yes. Um, And I think trying to eliminate that from consideration is would be the wrong thing to do. And the example that I recently heard, it was an interview with Peter Singer, and it was as as so often a thought experiment. And I I even have this feeling listening to the thought experiment that probably even Peter Singer wouldn't behave this way in real life if this were not just a philosophical conundrum. Because of course, with thought experiments, there's nothing at stake. There's no skin in the game. Um, But the thought experiment was, you're wearing a a pair of shoes, a new pair of shoes that cost you $50, um, 50 pounds or whatever. And if you if you get them wet, they'll be ruined and you don't have other shoes, you will have to replace them. You have to pay another 50 pounds to replace them. And as you're walking along, you're walking by a, a pond or a lake and this you see a child drowning. Do you go in and save the child, even though that will ruin your shoes? And Singer was arguing that you should walk on past and then give the 50 pounds that you would have spent on new shoes instead to 
a charity to a charity, choose a charity using the effective altruists list. Yeah. I think uh, there's a charity that that makes uh, mos- that sends mosquito nets to the third world, and it's one of the most effective at saving yes, lives yeah. because malaria is one of the biggest worldwide killers. And with those fifty pounds, you can save twenty child's lives. So the correct thing to do is to ignore the drowning child and walk yes. on past. <laughs> so that this kind of we must always apply logic and reason that doesn't sit well with yeah, me. No, I can understand that. And, and I think using logic and reason can sometimes take you to uncomfortable places, and that's to be expected given the way our brains have developed and evolved. But in a way, um, and, and Peter does count himself as a sentientist. He's one of the people along with um, Richard Ryder and a couple of others who developed the term originally. Um, uh, they developed it really out of the animal rights movement. And my intervention, what I've been trying to do is to recast it explicitly as a, almost as an extension of humanism. So linking to that commitment around evidence and reason. What I would say, though, is that the baseline requirements of, or, or the philosophy of sentientism is, is actually quite simplistic. It doesn't imply you have to be an ultra utilitarian. It doesn't have to imply you need um to be a, you know, applied deontological rules. It doesn't explicitly uh, tell you how to make all of these massively complex trade-offs or even how to interpret evidence and how to imply reason. All it asks is that you do commit to evidence and reason and grant some base level of moral consideration to everything. So um, there's an enormous diversity of people who might call themselves sentientists, as there are humanists, and there are lots of different um, philosophies within those areas that could lead you to different answers to those thought experiments so in a way i'm sort of i'm copying out a little bit you know i can share my personal view on that thought experiment if you like but sentientism doesn't drive you to a hard-edged utilitarian perspective necessarily it just says you have to at least have some base level of moral consideration for everything that is sentient beyond that there's so much complexity about trade-offs and priorities and decisions that we will all continue to struggle with probably forever Yeah, I think the other problem with prioritizing evidence and reason or saying that you prioritize it is that it can give you this false sense of security or of superiority. You know, my philosophy uses evidence and reason. Well, the other person also thinks their (laughs) their philosophy is based on evidence and reason. Um, Everyone thinks that where it's appropriate. You know, I feel that there are many domains in which evidence and reason are just irrelevant. I think, uh, you know, when I'm dancing, I don't, how is evidence and reason sort of relevant to whether or not I'm a good yeah. dancer, for example? Although, although, although ultimately, even, even your experience of dancing is grounded in, you know, a physical reality, uh, the way your brain operates, how that generates sensations. I'm not saying it's even sensible to try and break that down, although some researchers probably are, but but even that entire rich, very human experience ultimately is part of a physicalist reality that exists that generates the wonderful experiences you have. So, so again, because there's a commitment to evidence and reason doesn't mean it's some sort of clinical, cold, lab-based assessment of everything. As, as with humanism, the idea is that we also celebrate the richness of sentient experience and all its, all its variety. Does that make sense? I mean, but but you're right. There is a danger in 
you know, I guess in, in any sort of naturalistic philosophy that it can lead you to, if, if you like, your own sort of dogma, when the whole point of this philosophy is that it's explicitly anti-dogmatic. The idea is that you, as, as in science or more broadly the application of reason, you are always in doubt and you are always progressively trying to get less wrong. You never reach a point of complete certainty because the evidence shifts and refines. But but the hopeful thing is that while you're right, different groups or different people will always disagree about their interpretation of evidence. If we are always having a shared commitment to the fact that there is some sort of objective reality we can look at and examine, you know, differ in their interpretations of evidence and how they apply reason. But as long as there is some sort of shared commitment to facts and an objective external reality that we all share, it gives us a way of um, converging, discussing in a meaningful way, and maybe even agreeing over time about um, certain things in the moral, ethical, and scientific spaces. And many would argue that, you know, since the Enlightenment, that's largely what humanism and that commitment to evidence and reason has enabled us to do as a as a human race. Um, and sentientism would just extend that to to broaden our definition of of who else we involve. Um, whereas if beliefs are based on dogmas, they are almost by definition, there, there is no way of reconciling them because if you cannot challenge those dogmas based on evidence or reason, there's almost no point in having a discussion. So I'd say it's those two things. It's, it's not a cold clinical point of view. It tries to encompass that full range of sentient experience and, and that shared commitment to there being some sort of objective truth and reality we share actually provides some way of us being able to communicate and collaborate. So um, I'm sorry if this is going to seem like a, if I'm going to seem like a hostile witness in during this interview, because I feel free. <laughs> um, my, uh, my basic attitude towards this is a great deal of skepticism. I'm sure you're used to that. Please don't take it personally. Not at all. But it, it might be interesting to say, do, do you feel the same about secular humanism? No, no. I mean, um, Universal liberal secular humanism is that's my jam, baby. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, that's partly what I expect, right? And 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 humanism, at its heart, has that commitment to use of evidence, application of reason, you know, respect for the scientific method. And and in a way, sentientism is no different from that. It's saying we, you know, we we double down on exactly that same humanist commitment to evidence and reason. All we're doing here is explicitly extending the moral consideration to to a wider circle of concern. So there's no real difference between sentientism and humanism when it comes to that commitment to evidence and reason. Well, I kind of I disagree. First of all, I think the sec secular doesn't mean atheist, and I'm not an atheist. Yes. Yeah. Um, so here's the first point where we're going to disagree. So I feel that. Secularism implies that every person is free to practice their religion or to have no religion without persecution or discrimination. Absolutely. But you cannot force your religious views on other people. And that includes things like, I don't know, having your son circumcised or making your daughter marry at age 14 or whatever else it might be. You can't you can't force your beliefs upon anybody else, especially not in any irreversible way. But what you yourself believe and practice should be of no concern to anybody else. 
If you choose to wear hijab, that's fine by me, as long as hijab is not mandated. If you, you know, if I choose to go to the Agiari, how does that affect anyone else's life? And um, if I, uh, why would you want to be- control what is going on inside my head, uh, what I'm believing or feeling or not believing or feeling? Yeah. Um, I can see why you would want to, you would want to not control, but you'd want to make sure that my actions were ethical. And of course, my freedom ends where someone else's freedom begins. But I, yeah, I don't know why it's important what you actually no, believe. And, and in a way, <laughs> as, as long as your actions comply with, you know, human and animal rights considerations that we've agreed on, um, I, absolutely. So, so I, I, and I totally agree, right? So I'm, I'm a secularist as well. Secularism and humanism are different things. And most humanists want a secularist, you know, want a secular society for the reasons you talked about. And I'd argue, you know, that, that the best defense for any uh, freedom of religious belief is to live in a secular society. Um, because by definition, the state is neutral to any religion and therefore supports the freedom of belief. Um, so they're distinct. But I guess my point about humanism, and there are different interpretations of it, but if you, you know, if you look at the International um, Humanist and Ethical Union or the UK humanist definitions, they are explicitly not theistic uh, organisations and they do not accept supernatural views of reality. So that that's an essential part of what, you know, I guess the definition of humanism I'm using is, is that it doesn't um, say no one should be religious, but it says if you call yourself a humanist, a, you know, a, a humanist in this context, it means you personally just do not have supernatural views. Yeah. Well, also we need to, if we're going to have a shared ethics, we can't base that on the supernatural yes, um, uh, because completely. I can't tell you you should do this because because you know my religion tells you to because you're not a member of my religion. Yeah, and and I would argue even even if somebody else is a member of that religion, um, it still doesn't justify you causing them unnecessary harm or suffering. Um, right, but it also doesn't make any sense that something would be only applicable to members of your religion and not to everybody. You know, if you want to have yes. a universal ethics, uh, you can't base it on specific religious teachings. Yes, yeah, I agree. So, 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 and I think you know that I'd, I'd completely agree with that philosophy. Is it, it, it's a, it's about secular government, state laws, and human rights. But humanism and sentientism as philosophies that people may or may not choose to adopt are explicitly non-theistic and and are not based on supernatural views. Um, and they would argue that if if your concern is for either you know equally all other humans or more broadly the suffering or the well-being of Uh, other sentient beings, of all sentient beings, including humans, then our decisions about morals and ethics should be based on that suffering and that well-being and, you know, our our evidence and thinking about the likely impacts of those things, rather than some other supernatural or revealed rationale for our ethical decisions. Of course. And and also, um, being an atheist is uh, often courageous, depends on where you are in the world. And very much so. Yeah. It's a position of integrity. You know, I can't see how there is any, uh, there's any moral superiority to believing in a god or gods versus not believing because belief is not voluntary. Although, although, although it can be in, in a way, that's part of what humanism and sentientism are trying to say is 
you can choose what to believe in based on evidence and application of reason. So my beliefs have changed, you know, over the years. Within, yeah, within the non-supernatural yes. realm. But, um, but, 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 but my, think, my but, opinions, of all, my beliefs about the supernatural realm have also changed as well. And I was brought up, you know, believing, you know, in, in a fairly bland version of Christianity and through the application of reason and searching for evidence and reading widely, I deliberately changed my belief on that basis. Right. That's that. I find that really odd. It's remarkably <laughs> common. <laughs> I, I just, well, uh, it's remarkably common for people to lose their belief, but to just say, I choose not to believe, I find that really odd. You either believe something or you don't. For example, I look out the window, I believe it's a sunny yeah. day today here in Buenos Aires. I can't just make myself decide that I believe it's raining. No, I can. I, I, I agree, although, it, although you're believing it's sunny because of the evidence that's reaching your senses that it's sunny. Um, I mean, we could... We could, well, yeah. we could get so, into an, a discussion about determinism and free will and that you have, you have, <laughs> you know, in that sense, you have no choice but to believe what is presented to you. But in the common sense, illusory version of free will, um, you know, we do look at evidence and decide what to believe and what not to believe. And, and oddly, the people who are explicitly taking a decision to believe things for which there is no evidence, you know, it's really clear they're taking a decision to believe that because there is no valid evidence for those things. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still pretty skeptical about whether you can really choose to believe or not. So, you know, if you wanted to believe in Thor and Odin and things like that right now, would you be able to? Because I would not. I, so that's that's what I mean when I say that I don't think belief is voluntary. So it makes no sense to me to see atheism versus belief as a moral issue. Yeah, I, 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 I guess I'd be interested in... Uh, how you think beliefs are formed if 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 you don't choose them again in a hard version of you know looking at free will everything is deterministic so we know we have no cho real choice about anything but but exposure to in the, even in that sense exposure to evidence and application of reason drives you to a conclusion i mean that's just the nature of that's just the nature of thought and discussion and argument and you know, people's minds do change. Well, no, I, I disagree because people discuss and argue all the time and, and reach different conclusions. Yeah, and, but, um, but often so, they, do, they do over time manage to converge. I mean, that, you know, in, if, you, if you took a sort of Pinkerian view of human progress, that's almost the essential thing that's helped us get to where we are today. Yeah, I still don't think that you can just choose to believe whatever you like. <laughs> you know, um, if you tell me the moon is made of green cheese... Um, I just cannot choose to believe that. And of course, I've never been to one. I don't have hard and fast evidence, but yes, I... Yes, you are. There's yes, no... you are a Zoroastrian. Yeah, <laughs> I am, yeah. yeah. And I think that's, that's so, an interesting you know, example I... in, that, in that you're right. If someone says, you know, the moon is made of green cheese, I, I could not possibly believe that because there is no evidence for it. Yet billions of people around the world believe things that are even more outlandish than the moon being made of green cheese with as much evidence. Right, with no evidence because they're not things that are f falsifiable. So it's not part, of, it's not, yeah. you yeah. know. Yeah, and, and, and I agree, right? It's not, it's not, it's not necessarily fa falsifiable, but at the same time, there are an infinite number of things for which there is no evidence. So any decision to choose between them is completely arbitrary, and I would argue pointless. I guess I should move on quickly from this. I don't want to spend too much time on this question, but 
you say that evidence and reason underlie both viewpoints, atheism and veganism. And of course, I have read Sam Harris's book, The Moral Landscape, and I'm familiar with his idea that science can produce human values, and his values are based, and it's a very sentientist uh, viewpoint, even though he is certainly not a sentientist. He is not even vegetarian. Yeah, it's interesting because he, I, in a way, sentientism could be a, a, a name for the philosophy he puts forward in the right, moral landscape. Right, but because he, yeah, he sorry, go, go, go ahead. I interrupted you. It, well, well he, he explicitly does grant moral consideration to non-human animals that are sentient. He just, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't take the step of then applying that to the decisions he takes in his uh, daily well, life. I think everybody grants, almost everyone grants moral worth value to non-human animals. The question is whether we grant them equal value to humans or not. But the th so in the moral landscape, you know, his thesis, in case anyone here isn't familiar with it, is that morality is based on the fact that the one thing that I can be sure of is that I exist. I don't know about you, you could be just a hallucination. Maybe I've just forgotten to take my schizophrenia drugs and there's actually nobody on the other end there. Or yes. maybe, you know, I'm part of some simulation, some aliens are playing a computer game and I'm some avatar within the game. I think that's much less likely. Yeah, and I'm a non-player character. Yes, maybe I'm just a brain in a vat or whatever it might be. But I have a consciousness and I'm able to suffer and I'm able to, I'm able to feel happiness and I'm able to feel suffering. And so therefore I want to increase happiness, minimize suffering and... I might as well assume that everybody else within their own heads is also experiencing the same thing, the same consciousness, and they want happiness and uh, to increase happiness and minimize suffering. And therefore, the logical thing to do is for me to behave in a way that will increase other people's happiness and decrease their suffering. Yes. But I think that is still trying to go from an is to an ought, even in Sam Harris's view, because of course there are psychopaths and sociopaths out there who say, well, the only thing that matters to me is my own pleasure. I don't care about other people's yeah. suffering and maybe their suffering even gives me more pleasure. So this, just this kind of viewpoint doesn't actually, what's missing is why we should behave in the moral way. And I don't think religion has the answer to that at all. But yeah. the answer to that is not simply, it's not simply a logical deduction. There's another step there. And that step is much greater when you get to sentientism. So you say evidence and reason underlie both viewpoints. The viewpoint, sorry, this is from your ARIO magazine article. You say evidence and reason underlie both atheism and veganism. And, but one of those is about logic and the other is about ethics. You're moving, so you're kind of roping an is and an ought together. So I can't, I can see, I mean, my personal feeling is I don't think it would be good if everyone were vegan for reasons of, uh, for ecological reasons. I think that would be uh, probably not the optimum. But almost certainly, let's say more people could become vegans and that would probably be a good thing. Uh, for the planet, but to become a, a vegan is a sacrifice. 
I was vegan for, I did veganism for a year, um, a few years ago, and it was really quite a miserable experience. I was craving meat and dairy almost every day yeah. uh, for, for a year, for an entire year. And I really, I did have a vegetable coconut milk curry that I made, which I quite enjoyed. But most of my eating experiences were really quite unpleasant. The food was very unpalatable and I was kind of choking down food. And very often I also had just had to go hungry yeah. because there was no vegan option. And so, you know, my friends would be eating something delicious and I would be ravenous. This would be in between dance class and going dancing. And I'd be eating tomatoes, lettuce and onions with a, with a little bit of drizzle of olive oil and a slice of white Wonder Bread because that, those were the only vegan things that the restaurant had very frequently. And it felt so unsatisfying. Well, and you're, you're at real risk. And I know you've had this before of getting a, a Twitter storm of feedback on dietary options. <laughs> can we, yes, can we I'm, the, sure, I'm sure I can am. We, but... Can we go back to the is and the ought thing and then the environmental stuff first? And then it'd be good to come on to yeah. you know, the, you know, how much sacrifice is it really to, to, to follow through on those implications? Because... To my mind, I, I'm, you know, similar to Sam, really. I'm not that concerned about the is or boundary, um, partly because the logic flow for me goes, I experience suffering. I experience suffering as a qualitatively negative thing. I mean, that's almost the definition of suffering. From observing others, humans and animals, from their behavior and, you know, from scientific research into the way their nervous systems work, I'm not 100% sure they experience suffering but I am overwhelmingly confident they do, as are most people. Right. Um, so, I agree. But, yeah. And then, if morality is anything, morality is the is is making decisions about what what is good and bad, and morality is deciding what we ought to do. And suffering is bad, and morality is about avoiding the bad. Therefore, it is moral to avoid suffering and that entire statement didn't involve any oughts at all so i i i tend to well, see the, the moral it is moral that's that's an ought but, but morality morality itself is is about working out what we ought to do to avoid suffering so it's almost definitional that it's included and i agree you could you could take a decision mm -hmm. to <laughs> i disagree but i think we can just this is a point for philosophers and we need yes. to talk about <laughs> And I'm not one of those. I'm not one of those. So, but I guess then, then you know, the next stage would be in, in general, if people don't have to make a sacrifice and um, they don't see other negative side effects, they would prefer not to cause suffering to other things. So, you know, that's partly because we've evolved that way. We've evolved empathy. We've evolved, evolved compassion. It's partly, you know, there are arguments about reciprocity and uh, the evolution of cooperation that have also led us to feel that way. Um, and part of the reason, you know, I do care about the suffering of others is because it makes me feel better personally, it improves my own experience to, to, uh, to believe that and to, to operate in that way. So I guess that's, that sort of links together this sense of you know, wh why do we, why, why should we care about the suffering of others? Uh, but there is still a question there about what degree of sacrifice do we make? And there's, you know, all sorts of open questions about trade-offs and decisions there um, that people will continue to disagree on. Um, and that includes on the subject of veganism. I guess my personal perspective, and the reason most sentientists 
tend towards veganism, not not all by any means, but most of them tend that direction. And I'd argue if you know you really want to reduce your level of hypocrisy and cognitive dissonance, that's probably you know you'll end up somewhere in that space. Is because from I think you know <laughs> from what you've said. Uh, that sounds like an uncomfortable position to be in, but it feels very unusual to me from the experiences of other people I've talked to. For most people, there are viable, easy, healthy alternatives that mean they don't have to make a substantial sacrifice. And when you put that on the scales against the industrial scale suffering caused, for many people, you know, that leads them to uh, you know, a vegan stance or something very similar to it. And interestingly, part of the reason that veganism seems to have become much more you know, a la mode in the last year or so, one is because the alternatives are getting better and better and better all the time. We've always had fruit and vegetables and, you know, and those other types of alternatives. But um, when you look at the plant-based alternatives, the application of technology, um, you'll see some of the clean meat products coming through faster and faster. The amount of sacrifice you have to make personally, I would argue is almost, is minimal already and is rapidly zooming into zero. The other reason it seems to have picked up is because if if you live in the first world, so you have all these posh options, you know, available to you. Um, so uh, some of the modern meat alternatives, you're right, at the moment, aren't fully accessible and are more expensive than 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 meat and dairy products. In some, in some cases, they in some cases they don't. The availability isn't isn't there. So I think that will change very rapidly. You can already see that, you know, with the Impossible Burger and going into commercial outlets, they're doing that at a neutral price point. I think the availability globally will improve. But even today, if you go to almost any market, um, you know, even in a rural area or any supermarket, the cheapest foods by kilogram will largely be beans, pulses, fruits and vegetables. So I know that doesn't work for everybody because some people struggle more than others and they need the modern alternatives. Uh, but even in the meantime, generally, for many people around the world, uh, you know, a non-meat and dairy diet is actually more cost effective. Of course. Yeah, of course. It's it's not about cost. It's really about a sort of palatability. So I, I had beans and rice every single day during the year that I was a vegan, pretty much. And I did get incredibly bored of eating that. And also, I did not, you know, I I felt noticeably less well. I was much tireder. I had really bad stomach aches and bloating. I, I did not feel, a, and, and I had bad skin. I did not feel at all good during that year. Yeah. I'm just going to put it to you like this. I mean, I know that some people do feel very healthy and good on it, uh, on yeah. a vegan diet, but I did not. And, you know, I am 50. I don't have, I don't have a pension plan. I'm poor. You know, I work as a freelance writer and editor and things. So I have to work and be healthy until the day I die. And so I do not want to gamble with something that's not optimal for health. And I definitely don't want to eat meat substitute products, which look to me really unhealthy. Those kind of vegan frankenfoods, that's not what I'm interested in. Interestingly, they're engineered explicitly to be radically less environmentally destructive and more healthy because the technology means you can tune and adapt and mm. and make them in essentially clean lab environments. Whereas if you mm. if you I won't I won't talk yeah. through it now, <laughs> but if you look into the if you look into the reality of the meat and dairy industry, you'll very rapidly develop an understanding of 
the re- let's say the reality of how that food is produced. Oh, and, I know. And, you know, I know it's horrible. I know it's produced in a horrible way, and I think that. And I'm not just talking ethically either. I'm yeah, talking, of course, sure. In terms of what's actually in the foods, as well. sure. But I'm not going to then eat vegetable oils and kind of texturized, re-hydrogenized and re like. These kind of engineered foods, I think, are also probably not the best idea. Well, I was, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a dietitian, so mm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm going to resist the temptation to give you advice. What I would say is that I think your your situation does that sounds really unpleasant. I it seems very unusual to me because I'm I haven't come across many people who really genuinely suffer from making that switch. It may be true for some people. But but the vast majority of people I've come across and the, the evidence base that I've seen in the research shows that um, nearly everybody can survive very healthily on a on a on a sensible vegan diet. And there's some great resources if you look at like the Vegan Society and so on. It talks about because because essentially it's about the nutrients. It's not about whether it's meat or dairy or plants. It's it's about the nutrients. As long as you get those right nutrients and you can get all of them from plant based sources, you can live a healthy life. But what I would what I would, the other point that you mentioned, which is important is the environmental aspect. And I think that's another reason why this has become much more topical in the last year, partly because of the research around the environmental impact of the animal farming industry. Um, and by some measures, it's you know as serious or almost as serious as all of transport globally because of the emissions and the land use and the water use. Yeah, so, so even if people uh, aren't concerned about suffering at all, the environmental... Which of course, they, which of course they are. I mean, don't demonize people um, well, I'm not, i wouldn't i wouldn't think to demonize i'm just saying in a thought experiment where you imagine you know that's okay. just not a consideration for you at all the environmental argument around bringing an end to animal farming is is, is also overwhelming partly because it has a 10 times inefficiency gap with arable farming if you take an an acre of plants and use them uh, for calories for humans um, you will get 10 times, you will feed 10 times as many people as if you take those plants, feed them to animals and then feed the animals to humans. Every step through that, um, you know, circle of life, if you like, you lose 80 to 90 percent of the calorific efficiency. And that's partly what drives the massive environmental impact of animal farming. And it's it's interesting because you, you've raised this point a few times, right? Most people do care about animal suffering. Um the Sentience Institute has done some really interesting research recently that shows that almost half of U.S. consumers actually disagree with factory farming and, you know, would like slaughterhouses banned. Um, so there is a, a massive latent groundswell of opinion that in philosophical terms agrees with me that suffering is bad, that the environmental damage is bad. But there's such a deep taboo and a deep societal traditional lock around consuming meat and dairy that's just preventing billions of people from taking that next step and bringing their actions a little more in line with their their beliefs which is very frustrating to people who are in involved in these movements but it can also lead to you know a little a little stridency that then puts people off <laughs> so it's a tricky balance because it's such an important topic well i'm not an expert on the environmental stuff but i think that an only plant based Agriculture would not be the ideal, and I am concerned about giant monoculture farms. Well, you can still have a massive, rich diversity. You can have a massive, rich diversity of plant-based farming. The main reason we have massive industrial monocultures is because where we do grow plants, so much of them are used for animal feed. 
Um, so actually, if we can transition to end animal farming, we'll end up with a much more diverse range of plant farming than we do today, where so much of our plants are fed to animals. Mm. I'm 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 unconvinced by that, but I don't have you know I don't have the facts and expertise. So. I will share some reading. I will uh, share sure. some reading. You can share some reading, <laughs> and I'll put that in the show notes. I think. I mean, I I I take your point, and I, for example, I re- very rarely eat chicken because when I eat yeah. beef, I can uh, eat um, grass-fed beef. So in Argentina, still a lot of our beef is is pastured. A lot of our cows are on pastures, not in a feedlot. And I want to avoid or minimize eating feedlot beef. I think feedlots are an abomination. And yeah. But there's there's no real equivalent of that for chickens. And so I, I do eat eggs, however, um, but I've stopped eating mm. chicken. I very rarely eat chicken. Yeah, many many people are following that path. I mean, you know, I guess I and many others have taken it to, to to a point around ceasing to eat meat and dairy completely. But many people are reducing in different ways. And there's there's that's that's interesting logic, right? So one is, um, you know, what's the condition of the that the animals are kept in? Another is simply speaking, the size of the animals, in that you cause more deaths per meal by eating chickens than you do by eating beef. Um, but again, there are some real difficulties here because uh most people i think disagree with factory farming and many people i mean you you clearly you know do consume grass-fed beef but but most people seem to claim that they don't participate in factory farmed food but the reality is that in the us 99 percent of meat and dairy is factory farmed and globally it's around 90 percent. so nearly all of our meat and dairy is factory farmed whether people like it or not and they don't right like but again, then you're left with this. Okay, so you know, so what? And that's that's where most people stop because, again, the taboo and the the tradition, you know, holds people pretty tight. And in a way, that commitment to that commitment to, you know, continuing to eat meat and dairy to me feels quite like the commitment to sticking with a religion, even though the evidence, you know, should point you a different direction. There's an interesting parallel well, there. Yeah, I mean, I uh, think there is more to food than just what's the most logical way of nourishing. So I think it's. There's also yes. vitality and pleasure are both factors. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. And and the experience of the experience of us as sentient humans in you know what we eat is 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 a part of the equation as well, right? How important mm-hmm. that is compared to the suffering, you can debate. But that is an important. Yeah, and part. I agree that culture also plays a role, and in fact, also for the religion. Yeah. Uh, since you know, I lived in India, where I think about half of Indians are vegetarians. It's certainly a very high proportion. Yeah, yeah, I think it's about half. And and Indian vegetarians don't eat eggs, of course. So they're a little cl- yeah. they do eat dairy products, but no eggs. So it's a little closer to uh, veganism. And interestingly, the if you go back into the history of vegetarianism, the word actually meant vegan. Um, it was only you know in later decades when there was a uh, you know a little bit of a divergence mm. uh, around dairy and. Uh, dairy products next. I, I do think that the future will will probably not be these Franken meat products, but more like lab grown cell based meats, uh, like the Memphis meat pro- project. My only appeal there would would be not to get sucked into this sort of natural, you know, nature is good, artificial is bad fallacy. And, and again, just follow the science and the evidence, because a lot of the plant based products and the cell-based products that are coming through, they are explicitly being designed 
to be more healthy and radically less environmentally destructive. That's exactly the point of those products. So I'm not going to claim they're perfect. I'm not going to claim they don't have issues or risks or they have their own environmental impact. But the entire point of the people driving the design of these products is to make them cheaper, more compelling, tastier, and less destructive than meat and dairy. And, you know, the evidence, we should follow the evidence as to whether they succeed, but the early indications are very good. Yeah. So, Jamie, um, uh, uh, well, I want to move on, but I'll just say very briefly that this healthier, they're engineering them to be healthier. In nutrition, there is absolutely zero consensus. I think the only thing that maybe 90% of or 95% of people agree is that we should eat vegetables. Yeah. And beyond that, there is zero consensus. So It's a pretty weak field, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's extreme. Considering how important it is to us. It's an extremely weak field. Uh, basically, we have, we have no idea what's healthy and what isn't healthy. Is yeah. it healthy and to I, eat I, whole I'll grains? We don't know. Some people say yes. Some people say don't eat them at all. Um, you know, is it healthy to eat pulses? We don't know. Is it healthy to eat a lot of saturated fat? We don't know. Some people say no. Some people say yes. You know, yeah. some people yeah. say you should eat low fat and some people say 80% of your calories should come from saturated fat. I mean, that is the state yeah. of the, of nutrition advice. I agree. It's weak. And I, and I, and I don't, some people will, will use health as a primary argument for giving up meat and dairy. And I, I don't do that. And I don't think the science supports it either. I think the, the evidence I've seen, such as it is, is that, you know, a healthy vegan or vegetarian diet is better than the average diet. But that is a very low bar to set, mm. because you can also have a very healthy diet that does have meat and dairy. So I think, um, you know, I, for me, it's very much about ethics and animal suffering and environmental impact second mm -hmm. and the health thing as long as it doesn't require a sacrifice that's very much a distant third for me at the moment and we need a lot more research to really understand it in depth so i think that i so i want to get to the animal suffering now not specifically with veganism but yeah in general so i i think there can't there's there's no doubt that we are causing a huge amount of animal suffering that could be avoided. I'm not sure that uh, the way that we eat is, is even the primary cause of that. There's also habitat destruction. Uh, there's, you know, there are all, there's pollution. There's all kinds of ways in which we are causing massive uh, suffering to animals. I don't think yes. there can be any doubt about that. Um, but where I differ from the sentientist thing is that this idea that, first of all, the idea that animals and humans are morally equivalent. Yeah. And secondly, the AI, which we'll also, I think, get to maybe at the end. Um, so let me just read something that you, you wrote. The sentientist position, or at least my conception of it, allows us to grant different degrees of moral consideration depending on where on the sentient spectrum something lies. And that that's the kind of logic that Peter Singer uses in his concept of personhood. And I find yeah. I, I don't agree with this concept of personhood. I think the species is a hard boundary for me, humans, and yeah. then afterwards dogs i will put in second position yeah, yeah. i'm un unabashedly speciesist you know i think a dog's life is worth more than the life of a cockroach 
And a human's life is worth even more than the life of a dog. I say that with a little bit of kind of caution as as you might as you might know or you might have picked up that dogs are sacred in Zoroastrianism. Um, for yes. us, they are the, and we the have most. A new puppy. We, we have a new puppy in the house. Oh. I'm, with you. So I'm, sure, I'm sure you agree with me on that one. In fact, it's the one point of Zoroastrianism that I can usually get people <laughs> to agree on. Dogs are sacred. I think Eckhart Tolle says that dogs are ambassadors of being or something. <laughs> um, ambassadors of pure being, he calls them. But of course, um, Singer's idea that it's about the degree of sentience um, leads to some really tricky ethical questions. And some of them, in Singer's case, I think sometimes I feel he's just trolling. Um, you know, he says infants aren't fully sentient, so it should be okay to, to, if you choose to, as the parents, obviously you need to have good reason, um, but it should be legal for you to kill your infant um, because they don't have full sentience. Um, you know, the logical corollary to that would be you can kill somebody when they're under general anesthetic having an operation because at that moment they're also not sentient um, because infants will have obviously grow up to have full human sentience yeah. or most will. And it, if we're trying to, if we're trying to choose and we're choosing based on degree of sentience, then we're going to consider some people within our own species not sentient and not fully, not full people, and we're not going to grant them the same rights. And I, that makes me extremely uncomfortable. And that's partly, that's partly why the way I'm framing sentientism, it almost deliberately leaves these sort of interesting edge cases and um, and thought experiments for others to fight over. All it all it claims is that if if the being is sentient, you need to grant it some degree of moral consideration. Over and above that, you know, you can you can continue to have these battles. So, in, for myself, I would agree with your categorization of cockroach, dog, and human, if, if you like. But but that's not just because of the cat of the species they fit into. That is because it's my somewhat scientific understanding of their degree or their level of sentience. And there's you know, there's a lot more research that needs to be done there around what species are or aren't sentient. You know, does it make sense to have degrees of sentience? Does it even make sense to compare, you know, different species levels of sentience at all? But I, I don't subscribe to this binary conception where everything sentient should be accorded the same level of right and moral consideration. I do think it makes sense that there probably are some things that have a lower level of sentience than others that are higher, partly because you know, as a fairly hard determinist, sentience to me is just a class of very advanced information processing. Um, and that could be super advanced or it could be reasonably basic, but still sentient. And I think it makes sense to be able to grade our moral consideration. But generally, most most sentientists, even at the very basic level where something has even some rudimentary level of sentience, where it has any sort of sense of experience whatsoever, they would still grant enough moral consideration to that being that they would have want to avoid its suffering or its death. So just because, you know, a human might have slightly less sentience than another human doesn't mean you have the right to kill it or harm it. It's still sentient. You still need to grant it moral consideration. You still need to grant it rights. So I'm, I'm not too concerned about these sort of philosophical edge cases. 
I'm more focused on that simple baseline and then the really clear, obvious, egregious harms that we do deliberately cause to, you know, hundreds of billions of sentient things, humans and, and, and animals. Mm. So hopefully that doesn't sound like I'm copping out of some of the tricky philosophy, but uh, no, I'm it's... really just trying to set a very simple, simplistic baseline. No, it's fine. I hate philosophy, actually. <laughs> much of it, to me, much of it is insular. Um, much of it is too semantic and doesn't necessarily engage with the real world. And again, that's why, you know, this very simplistic baseline that helps us focus on the really obvious egregious harms we're causing it feels to me more a more important place to focus. Mm. And that's partly, partly what I'm trying to do with building a, a bit of a movement and a community around this idea is to try and draw that link between philosoph pragmatic philosophy and the real world a little bit more directly mm. rather than getting lost in you know, stuff that's yeah, too abstruse. In these, in these trolley problem style kind of, yeah. Yeah. you have yeah, to choose between exactly. the life of a gorilla and the life of your four-year-old. Peter Singer says you should choose the gorilla, and, you know, and those, that kind of stuff. And those are, fa those are fascinating debates, right? And I'm sure people enjoy them, but um, there are some really basic, obvious harms to humans and non-human sentient animals that we are causing right now that are blindingly obvious, and we should focus on those first. And when we fixed all of those problems, um, you know, then we can come back to these uh, <laughs> trolley trolley problems and the edge cases and the and and the really tricky stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, that's 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 fair enough. I was quite interested in and a little and I'm a little terrified by your idea of granting uh, moral consideration to AIs. Yeah, <laughs> and there are sort of. There are two opposing <laughs> models of this. There's the Star Trek model in which you have uh, data. If you've seen the Star Trek episode, Measure of a Man, um, have, you, have you watched that? Yes. Yeah. So it's clear that data ought to be uh, granted full personhood and moral consideration. And in general, mostly in Trek, uh, when we have an AI becoming sentient, it's usually benevolent or at least neutral. Um, so yeah. there's this computer program that becomes sentient in Deep Space Nine. And I think Miles ends up trapping it in a sub-program and feeding it various <laughs> bits of information to keep it happy. And he describes it as the puppy. It's, ver it's very cuddly. <laughs> um, yeah. And you know, also those lights that become sentient in in Next Generation. And uh, you can tell they're sentient because they dress Picard and the others as big, ugly bags of mostly water. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Saggy, saggy wet bags of flesh, yeah. <laughs> but there's also the... Uh, um, but I have also watched Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, there's also the Battlestar Galactica model, the Cylons, that the AI uh, may well be sentient, but amoral. Yeah. You know, it may be a paperclip maximizer ready to destroy the entire uh, the entire planet in order, uh, yeah. if if by doing so it can make more paperclips. Yeah. And unfortunately, just because you grant moral consideration to something doesn't mean you don't sometimes have to constrain, harm, or even kill it if it uh, plans to do evil. <laughs> as as applies with humans, right? You, we still have moral consideration for murderers and rapists, but that you know we are absolutely still justified in 
punishing and constraining them. Right. But we don't, if our species were entirely murder, murderers and rapists, then there would be an argument for genocide. And so, you know, I think there is an argument for our genocide of AIs. <laughs> Potentially so. But you'd, I think you'd, you'd argue that presumably based on a balance of, you know, the likely suffering that, that could be caused if you don't go ahead, go ahead with it. And, and, and I, I do want to apologize here to the, you know, the, the, those who are involved in the sentientism community with me, um, because you know, many of them find the discussion and the inclusion of artificial intelligence is, you know, at, at best a distraction and at worst, you know, an irrelevance. Um, because again, you know, the, the problems that we're facing right now today, given the harms we cause to humans and non-human animals are so obvious and egregious that those need to be the immediate focus. The reason I, I do still include that concept in sentientism is one, just because it's just an implication of us focusing on what matters morally and what matters morally is the ability to suffer. So if there is another type of thing that is able to suffer, you know, we should grant it moral consideration. It's also because it comes back to, again, that fairly hard determinist view that in a way sentientism and consciousness more generally to me are just classes of extremely advanced information processing. So, you know, whether that runs on a biology or whether that runs on some other substrate, morally, I, I don't really see a distinction. Now, I'm, I'm pretty neutral on whether we're on the brink of an artificial general intelligence um, you know, singularity or whether it's something that will take hundreds of years. And in a sense, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm neutral on that. I'm not, I find it fascinating in a different context, but um, I don't see it as an immediate imperative from for sentientism. But I do like the fact that sentientism as a philosophy is ready for that eventuality. And if you want to get even weirder, you know, you could even think about sentient aliens if we ever come to encounter them as well. So, you know, the priority is absolutely about humans and non-human sentient animals because we know they exist. They're here now. There are hundreds of billions of them and we're causing obvious harms to them. But conceptually, I quite like the idea that the philosophy isn't defined by somewhat arbitrary species boundaries and it focuses on that characteristic of sentience that is the whole reason you would ever care about something morally. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Um, I tried this argument actually um on uh, Nicholas Christakis when he was on this podcast. Yeah, that was a fascinating episode, and it felt almost like you were talking <laughs> about sentientism without mentioning the word. <laughs> um, and as you remember, he was quite sceptical. Um, you yes. know, he said that any aliens who are able to come here, uh, you know, who are able to communicate with us or find our planet, given the technology that they would require to do that, would be so far in advance of us, that they would not really consider us to be sentient, basically, because their conception of sentience would, would involve so much more sophistication. Maybe, but I think, I think their sophistication would lead them to acknowledge that we do suffer and we do experience pain and pleasure. And I think they would probably have a deeper understanding of that than we do. And so I would hope that, you know, seems a bit silly to say, but if we do encounter aliens or create artificial general in intelligences, I hope they're sentientists, because if they are, they'll look after us much better than we look after non-human animals. So I've, I've joked before that part of the reason, you know, I, I like this philosophy is because, you know, hopefully we can encourage our future AGI overlords or alien masters to, to adopt the philosophy as well. It could be our salvation. <laughs> well, I did always like the way that in Babylon 5, that instead of talking about humanoids, they, they call them sentience. Um, yeah. So they yeah. say, you know, this planet is inhabited by 5 billion sentients. 
Yeah, yeah. Which I, I really, I, I, I really like. Me too. And for me, humans are still the most important sentience, if you like, right? You know, I, mm, I prioritize mm, them. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I mean, I definitely do too. But I, and I think the, for me at least, the species boundary is a hard boundary. Mm. The person who is human, except in some very extreme circumstances, like they're brain dead or acephalic or some someone who is very has very very severe mental disabilities where you really question their actual sentience but beyond that there's a hard boundary for me humans over other animals yeah. that is and I, and I would agree with you and I'd I'd agree based on a, an uncertain scientific view that we have a higher degree or a richer sentience than other species whereas you would take that stance just because we're humans and um, I, so I, mm. in a way, I think we sort of agree on for slightly different reasons. Yeah, and then and then dogs <laughs> next, but that's yeah. for completely <laughs> irrational reasons. I still feel dogs a dog's life is more important than the life of any other animal. Well, except for a species that's endangered, I guess. But I don't, you know, for one of the things that that leads to is that although I certainly think we should minimize animal suffering and talking of Star Trek, one of the things that they say is that they're kind of slightly horrified by the, the fact that the Klingons still eat real animals rather than synthesized meat. And humans stopped eating an, actual animals centuries ago. And, you know, I think that is the direction that I would like to see us go in. I would like to see the Memphis Meat Project or something similar to that work. And I would be totally happy to eat farmed meat that was farmed from cells in the lab. Yes. yes. But I'd also be happy to eat meat that was from animals that lived in good circumstances on farms. And, you know, I think that there is use for natural manure rather than artificial fertilizers. And there are, there are reasons for keeping animals, farm animals around, mm. in, my, in my opinion. And if the farm animals are cared for, I'm happy to have them raised to be killed. And that yeah. is a hard difference between, with, uh, between that and, and humans. It is, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, one, if you just need manure from animals, you'll get more of it manure from animals you'll get more of it if you keep them alive um to you know i i agree with this idea of allowing an animal to live a long healthy happy life and then killing it but that just isn't the reality of you know 95 to 99 percent of animals. of course no it's um, not but, but i would even then even if you have an animal that isn't killed you know very early in its lifespan with suffering even if you could find some enormously ethical healthy way of um, having long, happy lives, I would still have an ethical objector um, ending that sentient thing's life without its consent. Right. As the, yeah, that's where we that's where we differ. But it's as you say. But again, we're, 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 but again with, this is one of the interesting things is that most non-vegans actually agree with most vegans about factory farming and animal farming, which is ninety percent of the animal industry at the moment. So actually, you know, it often doesn't feel like it in public debates, but there's an enormous degree of consistency and agreement around factory farming that we could all focus on together and again you know once we've worked through that we can discuss the ethics of argentinian grass-fed beef you know that that 0.5 percent of the animal yeah, industry later yeah. but um we can focus together on the horrors of factory farming right now because the numbers are 
are absolutely breathtaking. Some again, some of the Sentient Institute's research uh, has estimated that somewhere over a hundred billion animals are, you know, bred, farmed, and killed every single year for meat and dairy, and that's an underestimate, you know, given fish. But um, so the scale is just breathtaking. Yeah, I mean, I think we all, um, I think that we all understand that the one of the problems is that we live with cognitive dissonance at many, many levels in our lives. Yes, we all have um, it. And it's not just, but it's, it's not restricted to our eating habits. It's, you know, the clothes I, I'm wearing, were they made in a sweatshop somewhere? Has, is child labor being exploited for this? Is it actually even good that there's a sweatshop there because the alternative would be prostitution for those children? Or, you know, if, uh, we are so, so interconnected and our actions all have kind of ethical implications. In a sense, the ethical thing to do, uh, since our planet is very overpopulated and I am not a person who makes a huge impact on the world, you know, the ethical thing to do would be to kill myself now while I'm only 50 and some of my organs are in good shape and I am a card-carrying donor. And, um, well, uh, you know, what I would encourage you to do is, is I, I value my own scenting experience higher than anybody else's or any, anything right, else. Too. So I'm certainly not, yeah. not going to consider doing that. Um, yeah, of course. But, you know, we, we do live with a continual cognitive dissonance. So I think it's not so surprising that we have this cognitive dissonance around eating. No. It's not that we no. don't know what, what is happening in the slaughterhouse as we're eating our steak. We know that and we, we think that is horrible. Um, but we just put it out of our heads because like so many yeah. other things we put out of our heads because there are so many bad impacts we're having, uh, you know, throughout life. Absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's a complex world, right? And nobody lives a perfect ethical life. It's just not possible to do, you know, uh, you know, the production of arable foods causes harm to animals as well, right? You know, there's, there's no way of living a life with zero suffering caused, but all I would say is just because cognitive dissonance is common and because, you know, these philosophical choices are hard doesn't mean we should use that as an excuse for not trying. So, so you know, I have cognitive dissonances. I have plenty of them. But I think it's a good thing to try and reduce them if you can. Whereas some people say, you know, we all have cognitive dissonance, so I'm not even going to evaluate myself. I'm not even going to think about my own decisions. I'm not even going to try to progress. And I find that, you know, odd. I don't think... The common, you know, the commonality of um, of, of uh, cognitive dissonances should be used as an excuse for not trying to improve. Mm. Okay, I have a few questions from Twitter. Um, mm. I think some of them you have you have answered, and some of them want to get into these philosophical games, which yes. you don't want <laughs> to get into. I'm not. I I I'm not sure that that actually. Do people enjoy these games? Yes and no. I mean, Peter Singer is possibly the most hated person on earth. He's treated like <laughs> Hitler in person by a lot of people. I, I mean, I do think Peter Singer has autism. I think he just doesn't understand emotions. And that's his main problem. He's trying to get at things from a purely rational point of view. But, uh, you know, the, I, I think that people both want to play these games and also they get very, very emotionally upset playing them. Yes, I agree. And and I think, I mean, some of them are intellectually interesting, but they're also very emotive. So it does become quite painful. 
Yes. Quite a lot of the questions, particularly on the animal rights side, the motivation is quite transparent. So, you know, it's fascinating to talk about the suffering of wild animals. It's fascinating to talk about, you know, is a lion immoral? It's fascinating to talk about, you know, what happens if I'm stuck on an island with a chicken, you know, and, and I'm happy to answer all those questions. But the reality of, you know, the main central element of, uh, you know, the veganism and vegetarianism movement is we breed and kill 100 billion animals every year for our food and drink in a way that, you know, is, is unconscionable. So all of the interesting conversations around, um, you know, chickens on desert islands and, um, you know, the ethics of wild animals, again, they're sort of interesting questions, but they don't, they're, they're really diversions away from the central cognitive dissonance that most people just don't want to face. I think the other thing where I have a kind of hard species boundary ethically is that although I am concerned about the suffering of farm animals, I'm much more concerned about tigers being killed or loss of habitat. I'm concerned, I'm much more concerned about the fact that they want to build a metro station in Are Forest outside Bombay. Yeah. If any of you want to go and and sign the petition to save Arrow Forest, please do. And I'll I'll link to my description of the of the uh, Bombay Forest in the in the show notes, so you can read about it. It's a magical and unique place, and because those things are unique, and yeah, uh, this is where my Pinkerian optimism that I generally have about other things falls down because I. You know, in the case of animal suffering, that's that's awful. But I think that we can probably find technological ways to solve this in the future that are cheaper, and therefore, you know, people will be will do them because they're cheaper, and uh, the nudge will be in that direction towards meat, farmed meat, or whatever it might be. But if tigers are gone, yeah, yeah. they're gone, and I don't think we're going to. Well, maybe in some future we'll have a Jurassic Park style situation where we can can re-engineer them. That would be the that would be wonderful. That would be the ideal. But as far as I can see at the moment, those things are cannot. If if Ari Forest is gone, it's gone. You know, if tigers are yeah. gone from yeah. India, they're gone. And so I I am much more concerned about that than I am about the suffering of chickens. And that again is a hard species boundary. It's that implies yeah. that I don't care I, that much about chickens. And I, and I, cause I care about those things too. Of course. The reason I care about them is, is the, the reason I care about them is because of the, the impact on sentient creatures. So I care about the experience of those individual tigers and their suffering. I care about what the biodiversity loss might mean for future generations of humans and medicines and, and various other things. And the pleasure those things give to, you know, the animals that live in those environments and the, and the humans that experience them as well. So I don't grant moral consideration to the forest itself or to the species of tiger, because neither of those things can suffer. But I, I empathize with, you know, and I share your concern for those things, but but because of their impact on se this sentient experience of, you know, of, of humans and, and non-human animals. So quite often there is a very strong overlap in the environmental space. But again, most people care more about species than they do about individual animal suffering they care more about generically you know the charismatic environment and charismatic animals and trophy hunting and fur but don't engage with the details of uh, the animal farming industry and again if you 
you know, I can understand why that might be because of how we've grown up and tradition and so on. But if you look at the, the raw hard facts, you know, it does lead you to a very different place ethically. But, you know, I think there is a massive overlap on mm. the environmental concerns generally. I think so. My concern with trophy hunting is, again, the scarcity factor. I'm not at all. Yeah. I feel no... Uh, I feel no outrage at all about people hunting deer. Um, in fact, my sister, who is a lifelong vegetarian, eats venison as the only meat that she yeah. eats because uh, the venison are cold. Um, and this, these are wild living venison who are wild living deer, which are who are shot. Yeah. And um, my sister is will eat that meat. She lives in the Scottish Highlands, so this is a local thing for her. Again, it's, this is a tiny, teeny, tiny, like proportion percentage. Most people don't live in a place where they are, where you know the guy down the road is going out with his shotgun now to get the deer. But I yes. have, I feel no outrage about that at all. My problem when people are shooting tigers or lions is that there are so few tigers and lions. And I think, I mean, it may not be very rational, but I think I do accord an actual moral value to the existence of the species and to the existence of the forest, even if there were no humans left to see it. Mm. Interesting. Yeah. How much, do you, how, much do you, how much do you care about distant planets and far galaxies? A lot. Um, yeah. I really hate the idea that we even, might even be if, alone. Even though nothing, even if nothing will ever experience it. Well, certainly even if we will never experience it. So I hope there are other inhabited planets of sentience out there, even if we will never meet them or make contact with them. I hope so. I don't like the idea that we are alone in the universe. And I was going to say, I read the book, The World Without Us, which is, um, which I'll link in the show notes, um, is a thought experiment about what would happen if humans became extinct. Have you, have you read that book? Yeah. I haven't read it. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I, I get, I understand the summary, mm, if mm. you like. <laughs> it's a, it's an absolutely marvelous book, and I do feel that um, the, it would be very sad if humans were to go extinct, and in a sense, it would make things feel meaningless in a way that my own death doesn't make things feel meaningless. And yeah. uh, which is something that Darren Brown has talked about a lot, that we actually place more value on the survival of humans as a species than we do on our own survival. Because if you discover that you have, if you discovered you have some late stage undiagnosed cancer tomorrow, let's hope not. Um, but you would not yeah. feel that everything had been meaningless. But if you discovered that an asteroid was heading for Earth and the entirety of humanity was going to be wiped out tomorrow, then I think things would feel meaningless, right? I'm not sure they would. They certainly wouldn't ah. feel that way for me. Because in a sense, you know, that, 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 that is a highly likely outcome for the entire human race. And whether it's, you know, tens or hundreds or millions or billions of years, I'm not sure that ending of the species really changes how meaningful our lives are, you know, at the moment. Because again, the, my focus is on the, the sentient experience, uh, moment to moment, and the quality of that. But is which does impact, which is affected by our anticipation of the future mm. of the species. But but um, is it the kind of is it because of how distant it is? I, this was uh, Darwin had a kind of crisis 
a depressive crisis when he discovered when he heard about the heat the um, death of the sun, yes, and yes. that our sun is going to go out as a. I think it will become a red giant first, and then burn out. Yes, four or five billion um, years, I think. We have yeah, some time. so we have a little time, and that. And we'll be doing incredibly well if we survive that. Long. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm I'm hoping that we will have the technology to go and find another planet before that happens, because it's a while off. Yeah. Um, and then we're facing the eventual heat death of the universe. So. Right. So, well, hopefully by then we'll find some way to there is we'll no find escape. some way to zip across to a parallel universe and start again there. <laughs> I kind of hope that us, our lineage, like our species, will somehow get through, survive. It's partly because, of course, I don't know of any other species with our degree of sentience, and that's why if I yeah. knew that there was. If I knew that the Bajorans and Nobulans and Klingons and whatever were, the Minbari <laughs> or whatever were out there, I would, I I would feel less. I would be less upset by the idea yeah. of the the extinction of our species. Because yeah, because because sentience is the only thing that matters morally. So as long as there's something out there that's still experiencing, it, it sort of reassures yeah, you. Yeah, but yeah. I wouldn't be really happy if the something out there still experiencing was just dogs. I mean, much as I love them. Yeah. I want a kind of more self-conscious level of experience than that. And I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'm monopolizing this conversation too much. I'm sorry. I'm going to ask you some questions from That's here. Okay. This is uh, so, someone called Patrice Aime or Amy um, asks, sentient, says sentientism reduces the distance between man and beast and thus make makes beasts out of us well it doesn't really do that it does the opposite kind of makes persons out of beasts but he says this is why it was adopted by those with intent to hurt other humans and i do experience this in in india of course um some many people uh, many devout hindus do privilege the lives of cows over those of humans yeah and particularly when you layered, layered against the caste system well layered against the caste system as well but but also um you know a lot of people have been killed for eating beef and even when those murders were investigated the police send someone round to the person's house to look in their fridge and send off the meats for any meat found in the fridge for lab testing to see whether they ate beef or not, yeah. which to me is quite irrelevant. The person was murdered. Yes, absolutely. It shouldn't even be a factor for consideration. But I think it's just, it's just, it's just another example of where supernatural thinking can take you ethically. It can take you to some awful places. Right. I mean, this is really, I, I think that's, that, has nothing to do with sentientism. So I'm going to just disregard that, really, that no. question. Because what, but there is, there is a point there where some people talk about um, historically, some groups of humans have tried to dehumanize by people by equating groups of humans with animals and pushing them down to that level to justify evil treatment. Sentientism is trying to do the opposite. It's trying to recognize the power and the richness and the enormous value of human sentience and actually recognizing as an extension of that, that we're not the only things that are sentient. So we need to improve our treatment of everything else that is sentient. It's bringing people up, not using it as an argument to uh, dehumanize certain, certain human groups. 
And that's partly why sentientism, in the same exactly the same way as, as humanism, is explicitly it's anti-racist, it's anti-homophobic, it's anti-misogynistic. It's you know it 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 looks at sentiences and humanity as a shared uh, you know common feature that we can all um, revel in together, and and denies any uh, you know discriminatory distinctions. Okay, all of these questions here on Ario are incredibly long. Um, yeah. and so um, something about your readership, I think. <laughs> There's some good there were some good good questions in there. Right. I th- I think this one might be good. Um, there is a problem with extending the circle of concern to include sentient animals. They are not in charge of their own lives and destinies. We are. The rights we want to extend to all humans include the right to self-determination. We cannot extend these rights to animals. What would you say to that? Um, yeah, it's, it, I think it's really interesting. So there's a few different pieces of the architecture here. One is, you mentioned it before, personhood. You know, uh, are animals legal persons in the same way as humans are? Um, there's also the question of rights, you know, and should animals have the same rights as humans? Um and I, I absolutely acknowledge that you can distinguish between different, um, you know, whether animals are counted as persons or not. Maybe you could count some of them and not count others. You would also look at granting rights in different ways because animals have different capabilities and interests from us. Um, I've actually had a, had a go at rewriting the Universal Declara- Declaration of Human Rights as a um, Universal Declaration of Sentient Rights to try and write a document that would cover all of the bases um, and I think it works but you do have to acknowledge that you know we have different capabilities and different interests so not everything would even want the same rights um, but again um, those are interesting topics but they're not requirements of sentientism sentientism doesn't say all animals have to have legal personhood and sentientism doesn't have to say all animals have to have the same rights as humans all it says is we just have to need have to have a base level of moral consideration for them, which means we don't want to cause them unnecessary suffering in simple terms. So, so you can you can hold that view, you could hold, hold that view without granting rights or personhood to animals. But I think there are a few grey areas here. Yeah. I mean, first of all, we do do think, I, I mean, I am okay with doing things to animals that I would not do to humans and that are not in the animal's interests. And are not what they would choose and may also cause them suffering or diminish their pleasure. Mm. For example, even though dogs are my most valued animal and I would not want to do, I wouldn't even do medical research on dogs, let alone cosmetic research. I wouldn't kill or intentionally harm a dog except in self-defense. And I would not eat dog even if it had already been killed. And I was very hungry. I would have to be at the point of complete starvation, even then I'm not certain that I could bring yeah. myself to do that, which is not. Yeah, and you can see the, again, that's another classic example, the annual outrage at the Yulin Dog Meat Festival. Mm, mm. Um, you know, people who are tweeting angrily about it are probably sitting down to a pork sausage at the time. Right, so. and, and pigs are arguably. But I agree, I agree. I'm with pigs you. are also very lovely. I have to not watch any pig videos because I eat bacon and I just, you know, it's, I have to, I I just run from the cognitive dissonance because pigs are clearly a lovely animal, very intelligent, sweet, you know, they're a little bigger and more impracticable. Otherwise we would probably have pigs as pets. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And you're far from alone. And, 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 you know, to be clear, it took me 
many, many years of cognitive dissonance before I became vegan. <laughs> so I, I remind myself of that before I get too preachy. And I still have my own cognitive dissonances now. So yes. anyway, I stopped your flow. It, in, in India, it's very common to, for people to have been lifelong vegetarians. Most of my mm. friends who are vegetarian in India have never eaten uh, meat or eggs, um, have never tasted uh, meat or eggs. But I think that's quite rare in the West. Because yeah. in India, it's all—it's like a kind of caste thing. You were born into a vegetarian family. You are vegetarian. Yes, yeah. But, but for example, I, I do think some medical research has to be done on animals. We should not do it on animals, if at all possible. And that is becoming increasingly, it's increasingly possible to use cell cultures instead. And for teaching, you can now use digital methods and virtual reality and other things. You don't need to be dissecting frogs anymore in class. That's a really good thing. But I think there are some areas in which we still do need to use animals for research. And I'm okay with that. And, and humans. And humans, yeah. Humans are used for research all the time, but without deliberately causing them suffering. So there's the hard yeah. boundary. And, and they have... And, argue, and they have the agency to choose their involvement often. Exactly. So in the case of animals, we are A, imprisoning them and B, deliberately causing them suffering. And although I would like to see that be a last choice option, there are some diseases which where I feel it's more important to find a cure for that disease than to prevent the suffering to the individual animals. And I do not yeah. feel that way about humans. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. yeah. I don't. I I agree with um, Ursula Le Guin in the those who walk away from Omelas. If to secure the happiness of our society, we have to keep a child in a darkened room to, uh, under constant torture, then we should let our society go to hell. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I do think that we could. I do think a that, wonderful author. Yeah. So there's. I clearly have a a moral differentiation that I'm making there. Mm. Also, you know, even though I really love dogs, I'm okay with people castrating dogs and with um, uh, and spaying uh, bitches. Um, yeah. And I'm not okay with forced sterilization of humans. Yeah. Uh, there may be some edge. Yeah, there may be some I, extreme again, edge think, cases again. With I, I think there will be there will be people. People, there will be people who class themselves as sentientists who will fall on both sides of those debates because what we're not saying is causing any suffering in circumstances is completely unacceptable. That's not the position. The position is you just have to have moral consideration for anything that can suffer. And sometimes causing suffering may well still be justified with humans and with animals. And and again, you know, there are many in complex and varied debates where you can either apply rules or a utilitarian perspective to try and come up with some conclusion. Um, and I, you know, uh, you know, I'm open-minded to the debate around all of those things, as long as everything that's capable of suffering is at least granted some moral consideration. And again, that brings us back to, you know, hence, yes, there are debates around medical research. Yes, there are debates around, you know, some small-scale, very serious causes of suffering. But there are also some massive industrial-scale, deliberate blinding things we're doing right now, which are causing industrial scale unnecessary suffering that, that are the priority. Right. But it's, you know, sometimes suffering is, is justified and sometimes causing suffering and even death is the right thing to do with humans and with animals. I would also say that there is, there is again a difference in the degree to which I see animals versus humans as individuals. And mm. so, for example, if there are only a few members of a species left, 
if we can breed them in captivity, I would like to see them in captivity in a zoo. Um, it's even mm. though those animals are utterly miserable in the zoo, are leading miserable lives, as many zoo animals do, I'm, I'm sure. Nevertheless, I would rather they're in a zoo and if we can breed them in the zoo. If we can't breed them, let them go free and enjoy their lives. But I would rather the species survive at, at the expense of those individuals suffering. Whereas, for example, if there were, I don't know, only four Maoris left and we could ensure that the continuation of that, that racial group by putting them in a cage and keeping them as breeding specimens, I would be absolutely, I would be aghast at that. And it's one of the things that I always feel when people are talking about white genocide, um, I, I uh, yeah. quote unquote white genocide, um, you know that. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, apparently, I mean, so I, I've lived in London for 25 years and some people on Twitter seem absolutely stunned that I've survived the white <laughs> genocide that apparently is Careful. going on despite its complete absence of appearance in any of the official statistics and uh, my personal experience. But even but, uh, if it were, yeah, if it were so the goodbye. case that, for example, um, people with blue eyes were dying out, there are fewer and fewer of them, or redheads or something, the, the implication is that we should somehow force people with blue eyes to, to breed. That they, and that, it, it's a mindset that implicitly regards humans as breeding stock, and I absolutely disagree with that. However, if it's a rare animal, then yes, I, I do under circumstance under certain circumstances regard them primarily as breeding stock. And the main thing is keeping the species alive because once it's extinct, we have no way as far as we can foresee, we will never have a way of getting them back. Yeah. Um, and that's and it, so that's and, a difference I, in morals. I, you know, I'm yeah, I agree. And I, and I, but I don't think there's an intrinsic value in scarcity. I think if, if there's a rare animal um, species that might have some future value in environmental services through biodiversity or medical research or something similar, you know, then there would be a justification. Otherwise, you know, I don't see there being any intrinsic moral value in a species, but I do see there being intrinsic moral worth in the, you know, the surviving, those, the last surviving animals. But I th again, I think it's a, you know, an interesting but somewhat minor mm, question. That's interesting. I, Would it be interesting to talk a little bit about how people in the humanist community think of sentientism? Because that's been that's been quite an interesting dynamic. Yes, please do. Yeah. So um, there's, I've, I've had some fascinating conversations with many humanists when I've been talking about sentientism and building a community around it. Um, and I also had some conversations with people who are current and historic leaders of some of the international and national humanist organizations and the responses have been many and varied so interestingly when you look at for example humanists uk or the international humanists and ethical association which is the global organization in their definition of humanism they already include a concern for other sentient animals um, so many humanists um, and anecdotally it seems that a much higher proportion of humanists are already vegetarian or vegan than in the general population and I think that is because they already have a commitment to evidence and reason they have a commitment to a broad moral compassion some of them know that humanism is even defined to extend that concern to sentient animals um, hence you know more of them are vegetarian or vegan so those people who are already in that space love the idea of sentientism because it takes all of the power and the value of humanism and the rational value of humanism and the compassion of humanism and it just simply extends it to the other things that can 
are capable of uh, experiencing suffering. So those people have seized on it and said, this is great. I've, I've got a name for the way I've always thought. So that's been refreshing and, and positive. There's another group of humanists, and these are quite rare, who actually use humanism and the fact that the species is in the name to justify dominion over other animals. So they, they say, no, this is about hu human supremacy. Our species is the only one that is a, a moral object and that deserves consideration. And that's where the line should be drawn. And they say that despite um, you know, the definitions used by the International Humanist Union. Um, but they're, they're reasonably rare. Um, there's another group of humanists that agree with the philosophy of sentientism. They think it's um, more coherent because it focuses on sentience. They like the fact it's very clear that it's not species bound, whereas the name humanism implies that. But for pragmatic reasons, they're very nervous about fragmenting humanism or distracting from its purpose or um, or uh, uh, or uh, you know, breaking a chain of traditional, traditionally powerful and valuable thinking around humanism as well. Um, so there's a, a, a wide variety of um, different uh, views. But most humanists are like everybody else, right? They apply evidence and reason, certainly in the sphere of religion and the supernatural, in that most of these humanist organizations are explicitly non-theistic. Um, they apply broad compassion to humans and to some degree to animals, but having cognitive dissonance and hypocrisy as most of the population and that they don't then take that step through to their personal and institutional behaviors. And, and you can see that when you look at what humanist organizations focus on. They, they Nearly all of their campaigns are focused on the human species. Uh, I haven't found one that has a policy that even talks about animal farming. Um, and their focus, understandably, is a, largely around resisting religious privilege and pushing for a secular state, which is something uh, I fully agree with and subscribe to. And that's why I'm a member of some of these organizations. But the name of the uh, philosophy, humanism, the focus of the campaigns and the fact that most of their members don't take that concern for other sentient animals seriously implies to me that we do need sentientism to formally and explicitly and clearly stretch that moral consideration a little bit further. And whether it becomes a sort of rearguard rebellious movement within humanism that pushes humanism's boundaries further or whether it's a distinct movement, I'm not really that interested. But it's been fascinating to have those conversations with, um, with a range of different humanists, some who've seized on the idea and are very positive about it, um, but a few who seem to have uh, ironically almost religious resistance to extending our moral consideration beyond the human species. That's a bit of a monologue, but it's been interesting to see the variety of uh, responses. No, that's excellent. I'm so I'm aware that we've this has been quite a long episode, and you have been so generous with your time, Jamie. Thank you so much. That's a pleasure. It's been lovely to talk to you. And I know that I have blethered on rather too much during this interview, more than usual. Uh, but I I didn't think I was interested in this topic, actually. But as soon as I began talking about it, my interest just grew. <laughs> I'm glad to hear and it. it. It's I'm very glad to hear personal. It. Uh, you know, it does, it does tackle very personal um, things and attitudes. And so I think almost everyone has a view about it. Yeah. And to me, the most important thing here, I mean, this isn't just about animal rights. It's not about veganism. It's not about religion. 
the most fundamental thing is it's about a recommitment to evidence and reason. And it has that in common with humanism. Um, and so it, so it has implications for, you know, almost everything we try and face as, as a human race or as a, you know, a wider group of species. Um, if you apply evidence and reason, we have a better chance of fixing all of our problems. And whether it's, you know, post-truth politicians, whether it's, you know, Orwellian behavior by some of those people who are supposed to be leading us, whether it's the behavior of theocratic states or the influence of supernatural or unfounded conspiracy theory on areas of human health and human rights. You know, the list goes on. I mean, I wrote a somewhat contentious list of what would disappear from the world if everyone was a sentientist. And it, it covers almost every aspect of, uh, of, our, of our lives. This isn't, you know, some sort of niche thing about animal rights. It has much broader implications than that if we take it seriously. And that's partly why I've found it so fascinating and why I've made it a somewhat amateur personal project to raise awareness of it because it feels timely. It feels important. Um, but it's very, you know, it's very unknown at this point. So Great. Well, thank you for drawing our attention to it, Jamie. It's a pleasure. And if people are, want to find out more, I, I, I think I've sent you some of the, you know, there's obviously the article I did in area, which hopefully serves as a good intro, but we're building some global community around it now as well. So we're on Twitter, we have a private group on Facebook, we're on Reddit, we have a Goodreads site, there's all sorts. So we, there's probably people from, interestingly, over 50 countries involved in these different groups so far. Um, from every single continent and a massive diversity of perspectives, which has been, um, yeah, really heartening to see people getting involved. And there's, you know, they're philosophers, they're academics, they're policy people, they're writers. Um, but most of the people involved are just, um, you know, interested lay people like me. So um, anyone who's interested in finding out more, feel free to reach out. That's wonderful. Thank you so much. I'll put all the links that you sent me to those organizations in the show notes. And Thank you so much for joining me, Jamie. It's been a real pleasure. And I'm going to do a little bit of housekeeping at the end of this episode. I apologize that there was no podcast last Sunday. Unfortunately, I had technical problems uh, in my interview with Eric Kaufman, the author of White Shift. And I, I will be... I will be interviewing uh, Eric in written format and I will send uh, all the patrons a link to that and probably using Letter. Letter is a new social media app slash website, but it's, it is a way for individuals to write letters to each other publicly, but one-on-one. -on -one without the distraction and the gladiatorial atmosphere of Twitter, without the likes and random comments, so that we can explore things in a in a slightly more in a slightly longer form, but without writing an article in a way that is more more spontaneous than writing an article and is personal. So we're going to be talking directly to each other one-on-one -on -one as we would in real life, but publicly. You can share the resulting conversations on Twitter and Facebook, and we will be publishing the conversation of the week and a small article about that conversation in ARIO each week. So if you would like your, you, if you write a good conversation, it may appear in ARIO. We will, of course, remunerate you as we always do for our writers. Please go and check out letter, letter.wiki. And I also want to give a quick shout out to Justin Ward, who is the babeliest babe of Canada, 
and my sound engineer and who is the most professional, generous and wonderful person. Thank you so much, Justin. And thank you, Jamie, for joining us. A real pleasure. And have a lovely week, everyone. You've been listening to Two for Tea, the accompanying podcast for ARIO magazine. ARIO is a non-partisan political and cultural digital magazine with a universal liberal humanist slant, edited by Helen Pluckrose with the assistance of sub-editor Yours Truly. At ARIO, we hope to counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria with calm, well-reasoned articles and civil discussions. Both ARIO and Two for Tea are entirely audience-supported. You, our readers and listeners, make these conversations possible. You can support the magazine, the podcast, or both on Patreon. Look for ARIO, A-R-E-O, A for Apple, R for Robert, E for Edward, O for Orange, and Two for Tea. All patrons will get access to free monthly patron-only podcasts and other perks. Plus, by becoming a patron, you will keep these platforms alive and flourishing. Two for Tea is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and all other podcast subscription sites. If you're listening on a podcast app, take a moment to hit that subscriber button, give us a rating, write us a brief review, even just a couple of words. Spread the news. Thank you so much for listening. Have a wonderful week.